pray that you would speak to us and speak into our souls today. As we continue in worship, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. That we would not just hear you, but we would be open and receptive to you. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want to tell you that um, I, I love America. I, I, I get um, I get emotional when I uh, when I hear or when I sing the patriotic songs of our country. I especially love the Star Spangled Banner. I, I played the trumpet um, through middle school, junior high. One of the reasons I didn't continue it is because I would rather be outside playing baseball than inside practicing. But the one song that would keep me inside practicing was the Star Spangled Banner. I love to play the Star Spangled Banner. I'm not sure my parents were quite as happy about me playing it over and over and over again on a trumpet in seventh grade. But, you know, there's something about it that I just, I love that. And, and I appreciate all of the freedoms that we have in this nation. I love reading about American history. I love reading about the great leaders of our nation. I could spend weeks, probably months, in the historic places of our nation's capital and the other cities that were part of our nation's origin. You know, we've been blessed in so many ways that many nations of the world have a hard time comprehending. We have freedom to be here today without worrying Freedom to go where we want to go and say what we want to say and work where we want to work and do what we want to do. And I suspect we probably take a lot of it for granted. I was thinking about some of those things we take for granted the other day as I was pondering the presidential transitions of our nation. You know, on January 20th, 2009, I don't know of anybody in America who thought that when the Obamas arrived at the White House that the Bushes wouldn't leave. Or even after the contentious 2000 election, you know, when, when, when the Bushes arrived, the Clintons walked out. And I don't think anybody gave it a second thought. But there are lots of countries of the world where that just simply isn't the case. And despite the problems and, and the issues that we wrestle with as a nation, it's an amazing country and we are greatly blessed. As we celebrate this day of independence... We want to give thanks to God for all the blessings that we live with. But we also want to ponder what it means as Christians to be godly citizens. As Christians, how do we live in a way that balances the the allegiance that we have to our nation and the allegiance that we have to Christ? And that's a question that obviously isn't just for Americans. It's a question for all people who claim to follow Jesus. Wherever we live. And it's a question that that ought to be important to us because it's important to God. And we know it's important to God because the number of times God addresses it in Scripture. And one of those places is the passage that we just read from the the second chapter 
of Peter's first letter. First Peter is a letter written to the Christians who are trying to discover what it means to follow Christ in the world. And the letter implies, as you read through it, that this, the original audience is facing some level of opposition, both religious and political. And it's in that context that Peter begins, verse 13, by saying, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. I'm intrigued by the way Peterson translates that verse in the message. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. And it ought to compel us to ask ourselves, how do we do that? How do we make the master proud of us by being good citizens? What does that look like? What do we do? And Peter's answer is the same answer that we hear over and over again in every context of life. Submit. Submit. Here's the thing. Despite the concerns that we may have about our nation, we are called to submit to governing authorities. Now, right away, I suspect that we respond by saying, whoa, submit? What do you mean submit? I mean, I understand submission to God. He's the perfect eternal one. And, and I even get submission to my spouse because we love each other and we're committed to each other. But submit to civic authorities, to the leaders of government? I don't know about that. You know, we need to remember that Peter writes this letter in the, probably in the middle of the first century. And more than likely, Peter is in Rome when the great persecution under Nero takes place. Nero attempts to blame the Christians for the great fire in Rome that many historians believe he himself or did or had started. And throughout the Roman Empire, Christians are being persecuted. The church in Jerusalem is being scattered around the Mediterranean world. And of all times, you would think that this is the one to stand in opposition to the government, maybe even violent opposition. And yet Peter says, submit. What does it mean to submit? The word he uses means to obey. Put yourself under the authority of another person. Yield to another person's admonition or advice. It means exactly what we think it does. It means to give up our rights. It means to obey. Paul uses this word with the Ephesians to describe how people in the church are to connect with each other. He uses this word to describe how spouses are to relate with each other. And this is the word that he uses to describe how believers are to see their lives in relationship to God. I suspect that there may be some whisperings going on about Peter. He's getting soft on sin. Trying to get in good with the government. He's betraying the faith. Peter just doesn't know what we're going through. He's out of touch with reality. Doesn't he realize that we live in a world that's falling into moral decay? If we're going to survive, we've got to stand up. We've got to take it back. Peter, that's nice, but it's really quite naive and not very realistic. And yet Peter doesn't back down an inch. His command is not an aberration. You might say, well, maybe he just meant it for those people in that particular setting. It's a repeated biblical principle. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. He writes to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Submit. 
Now, submission to human authorities doesn't eliminate our responsibility to be a voice for positive change in our world. In verse 16, he says, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. The call to submit doesn't imply that, that we are apathetic about injustice in our nation or in our world. Submitting to authorities doesn't mean that Christians just sit by while the world morally disintegrates. In fact, you can't be a believer of Christ and ignore the needs of our world. We can't be a follower of Christ and just act as though systemic evil doesn't exist. We have an obligation to be involved in all of life, including the political arena. The voices of God's people have often been catalysts for addressing the evils of society. The issues of slavery and women's rights are are a part of, of the Wesleyan church's history. As we were some of the most vocal voices during those days. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid in South Africa, the presence of Christians were huge in being catalysts for changing what was going on there. And we need to be involved in the political arena. We need to work for change. We need to be an influence. But we need to do so as people who have a reputation for caring more about others than about ourselves. People who care more about the concerns of the innocent and the needy than just about our moralistic agenda. More about transformation in the love of Christ than securing a political victory. I think that's his point. Peter's point in verses 12 and 15. When he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it's God's will that by doing good... You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You wonder, why do people view the church sometimes as a danger to society? Well, I suspect it's for a couple of reasons. One reason might be that, they, that people disagree with us. It's their prejudice against God and his people. And honestly, there's not a lot we can do about that. But I suspect that a lot of times people view the church and Christians negatively because honestly, we have acted like arrogant morons. It's our behavior. And that's something we can do something about. Unfortunately, we tend to spend the majority of our time fighting the first issue rather than the second one. And that makes us seem even more arrogant and more moronic. Being a voice for Christ means that how we speak is as important as what we speak. And too often, we fall into the trap of using the same strategy as everyone else in order to make our voice heard. We shape our involvement in politics as a battle. A battle to the philosophical death, a take-no-prisoners conquest for God. And we will do anything necessary to win that battle. We exaggerate. We use incendiary language. We vilify our opponents. We characterize them. We, we incite people to fear the worst case scenario. And then we paint that scenario in as frightening terms as possible. And we justify all of that because, hey, that's the way our system works. It's what you do to get ahead, to get things done, to make a difference, to get a seat at the table, to be heard. And yet we know that fear is the opposite of God's loving presence. The Apostle John says, the perfect love casts out fear. 
So to use fear as a motivation is not just wrong, it's unchristian. And we need to remember that even if the worst case scenario takes place, even if our rights as Christians and our right to speak for Christ are taken away, then it would simply mean that we are living like millions of our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the contemporary world. Now, we don't want that to happen. And we ought to work against it and pray against the persecutions of the world and the persecutions that Christians might face. But we also have to admit, as terrible as persecutions are, they have typically had a positive kingdom effect. While gaining political power has almost always harmed the church. Now, I'm intrigued by Daniel's response to his situation. You know, when he hears about this, this prayer ban, he doesn't go to, he doesn't go to the, to the uh, king as he could and, and plead his case to change it. And, and, he, and he doesn't, you know, start a political action committee to do something about it. He just goes home and prays. And he leaves the consequences to God. We don't know a lot about the early church's involvement in the politics of Rome and local government, but we do know that they had a voice in shaping culture, and they did that primarily by their actions, their acts of compassion. There seems to be, at least at different times, a trend in the, in the early centuries that if a family wasn't pleased with their newborn, particularly if it had some type of handicap or they just realized it was going to be a lot more work than they thought it was and they just wanted to get rid of their child... They would set the infant outside and let the weather take care of it. And Christians were appalled at this behavior. So what do you think they did? They went out at night and they swept the city and they picked up these children and they raised them as their own. That's what Christians do to influence culture. And you know, there is a wider, more dangerous issue here. The way we treat people in power is a direct reflection of how we treat people who disagree with us. The same people are sending out disrespectful emails and creating disrespectful websites with disrespectful things to say about the president or Congress or, or judges are the same people who are disrespectful in every arena of life, in the community, in the workplace, in the church. Verse 17 says, show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a connection between honoring authorities, loving Christians, and fearing God. The connection is the attitude of our hearts. When we disrespect those in authority over us, it's because in our hearts we aren't fearing God. And if our hearts don't fear God, then we're going to be fighting with our brothers and sisters until they agree with everything we want them to agree with us about. And our behavior toward leaders of government will eventually filter down to how we, how we uh, live with those who are most influential by us. And the way we, it's the way we treat all the authority figures, law enforcement, teachers, employers, local church leaders, denominational leaders, everybody. We can't help it because we don't operate in a vacuum. We are who we are. What's inside of us is what's inside of us. What defines us is what defines us. 
And being a godly citizen is about who we are that then leads us to what we do. It's really an issue of the heart that's revealed by our actions. And what's going on in our hearts is always a reflection of our attitude toward God. And so ultimately, we submit to authorities as an affirmation of our trust in God's perfect plan for transforming the world. Verse 14 says that these authorities are sent by God. And the call to submit is really a call to trust God that no matter what's happening in the world, God is still in control. Whatever the powers and the authorities believe that they have, God is the ultimate authority. As Pilate's contemplating what to do with Jesus, he says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It looks like Pilate's in control, but he's not. And because Jesus knows that God is in control, he can surrender himself. And in Jesus' surrender, we're reminded that God's plan is not to change the world primarily through political rhetoric, but through his sacrificial love. Peter ends chapter 2 describing the strategy of Jesus. And he says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, by all human standards, Jesus' strategy is a total failure. The government executed him. And yet, two millennia later, we don't call it a failure. We call the cross of Christ the greatest triumph the world has ever known. So why is it so difficult for us to embrace this strategy as the primary tool for world transformation? Is it because we're afraid of sacrifice? Maybe. Is it because we're so accustomed to the ways of the world that we can't see truth and and the power of what Jesus has done? Is it because we forget that in the words of Greg Boyd, when God fleshed flexes his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo or Terminator. It looks like Calvary. Or is it because in our heart of hearts, we're saying to God, well, you know, that was fine for Jesus thousands of years ago, but we don't live in that kind of world anymore. You don't do things that way now. It's just not like that anymore. And our very relationship with God is at stake. So what do we do? How can we be godly citizens and maintain a presence and a voice for goodness in our nation, especially when the world's strategy seems to us as natural as breathing and God's strategy of patience and love feels out of sync and unnatural? Now, for one thing, We need to be a lot more careful about how we handle things like derogatory emails and conversations about the leaders of government. Instead of joining in, maybe we need to gently let people know that even though we may disagree with that leader, we respect them. 
One of our young people reminded me this week that our attitude about these things begins in the home. How do we as parents talk about the leaders of government? How do we refer to them with respect or disrespect, with honor or dishonor? Is it Mr. Obama, Mr. Bush, or something else? Is it Senator Clinton or something else? Is it Governor Patterson or something else? What are we passing along to those who are most impressionable? And surely nothing's more important than prayer. Let me challenge you to commit yourself to pray at least once a week for the leaders of our government. Pray for them to be open to God's leading, but also pray for God to bless them, even if you continually disagree with them. And I know that can be a hard thing to do. And I suspect it goes against the grain of of some of our thought processes. But Jesus says if we can't pray for God to bless those we might consider as enemies, then what is it about our faith that's any different from anybody else's faith? And pray for God to change your heart. Pray to be more enamored with God's strategy than everybody else's strategy. Pray for God to remind you that ultimately, as we are involved in the political processes, which we should be, that transformation ultimately takes place not through legislation, but through openness to Christ. On a Monday evening in 1982, a small group of Lutherans gathered at St. Nikolai Church for a prayer meeting. You might not think much about it, except that this was in East Germany and it was at the height of communism. Christianity was condemned and ridiculed and many churches were destroyed, put to another use. Being a Christian in East Germany in 1982 was going to cost you something. There was a price. And here were these people coming together on Monday evening to pray. If you looked at the group, you wouldn't see anyone you thought was heroic or, or even people that were filled with hope. But they came to pray. Some of them had grown up in the iron fist of communism. Others, the older ones, had, had known what it was like to live under the Nazis. And they knew what they were up against. And humanly speaking, what did their prayers have, effect would they have on what they were facing? There was really no reason for hope. And yet this little band gathered together to pray. And they prayed for freedom and for justice and for peace. And they prayed for reform and spiritual revival. And they prayed and they continued to pray Monday after Monday after Monday. And for years their prayers seemed unanswered. The communist regime was just as strong as ever. Just as harsh and repressive and unjust. But Monday after Monday after Monday, they gathered at St. Nikolai to pray. And after a while, groups in some of the other churches began to come together on Monday night to pray. And soon there were churches all over East Germany coming together to pray on Monday nights. And more and more people started to come. And soon the churches were packed. And then something amazing began to happen. The winds of change began to blow. And the once docile population began to speak out and rise up. And the once powerful police state found itself overwhelmed. And the communist government began to crumble. And on November 9th, 1989, so did the Berlin Wall. 
you know the rest of the story. But it all began at St. Nikolai in Leipzig on Monday nights. As people just came together to pray. I wonder what would happen in this country and the countries of the world if we stopped fighting and started praying and loving and reaching out and going the second mile and being Christians, citizens in a society that doesn't have our values but desperately needs them. And we did this not so our lives would be easier but so that others would be filled with the blessing and the grace and the truth of Christ. If you love your country, whatever country it may be, what are you doing to be a voice for Christ? Are you committed to God's strategy as first and foremost? Are we citizens that make God proud? Father, we pray that you will help us to be citizens who make you proud. Who trust your plan and your way and live in your spirit even as we work for change and for justice and truth in our world. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.